1994年11月20日女子プロレスの一番熱く長い一日史上最大の決戦ビッグエッグレスリングユニバースドーム頂上対戦ただいまより開催いたします And welcome to episode number 13 of Big Egg Podcasting Universe. Unlucky for some, but hopefully not for your ears. I am George Thompson, and I have Sarah Parkin and David Forrest with me. How is everyone doing? Hello. I was informed that we'd have recorded episode 12 and I'd forgot about it、um, about three hours ago. So, doing well. Surprised, a bit perturbed, <laughs> but you know, I'm good, happy to be here. Yeah, the five, the five most spoken words on this podcast at the time of recording. <laughs> at the time of recording. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing all right, thank you. I'm delighted to have been the person who got to tell David which matches we were supposed to be doing this afternoon. So, you know, that's always a, <laughs> always a handy thing to be able to do. You really、yeah. are my podcast mum, Sarah. And I mean that <laughs> in the nicest sense possible. I mean, I, I, I do understand if you also meant it as an insult. Like, that would also be fair. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, like, I, 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 had, I, had, I actually had a、uh, conversation.、Um, IRL、uh, last weekend at the time of recording, in which a big egg podcasting universe came up. I've gone out for、uh, a, a nice、Fuck、steak lunch. No, <laughs> a nice steak lunch with、uh, our friend、uh, Jose and his wife Marico, who I had like not met before. And uh, Jose, uh, who we, I think we mentioned on the podcast a few times, big fan of、uh, Japanese wrestling and、uh, combat sports. And he was talking about, oh yeah, you must go to go to Korokan Hall when you go to Japan because. Obviously, like you should go because it's really famous, but like the shows always fly by because they're always two and a half hours tops because it's it's really expensive to rent it for more than that. So the promotions, it's kind of like the Edinburgh Fringe, like you get in, you get out, and、uh, there's no you know, dilly dallying. And、uh, Marico said,、uh, Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Well, Jose was saying, I hate the shows which are like three, three and a half, four hours. And Marico was like, Well, you mean, you mean wrestling shows that are that long sometimes? I was like, Well. <laughs> oh, my sweet summer child. Let me tell you about this. And, and like, yes, it is mental. It's mental even to wrestling fans that this、uh, show lasted that long. We are going to be talking about matches 16 and 17. That's how long it was. This is approaching Starcade of 1999 levels of stupid, excessive match cardness. Oh, well, when、yeah. you consider the fact that, you know, Double or Nothing being the,、uh, at a time of recording, the most recent big AEW sort of pay per view.、Um, It's kind of fascinating to, to me to think that, you know, we were getting, everybody was really stressed about that being like, what, a 13, 14 match card? I'm just like, you shouldn't be getting close to big egg levels. Like, as a general rule, the big egg card was a 10 hour show. You shouldn't be getting anywhere close. I don't think I've ever told you this, but、um, like, one of the first videos I got of wrestling, like a show that I owned, was Starcade 1999, which has 15, count them,、Ooh. 15 matches on it, right? Are any of、um, them good? Um, 
<laughs> that says a lot right there. It really says a lot about there's, like, there's the a good there's a good there's a good Jeff Jarrett redacted ladder match. That's that's <laughs> oh yes. But it is also absolute nonsense. Like Jim Duggan must defeat Shane Douglas or he joins the revolution, sort of in a match where Kevin Nash and Sid Vicious in a powerbomb match and it ends when um, Jeff Jarrett smashes the guitar with Sid Vicious and Kevin Nash just goes, I powerbombed him and then that's the end of the match. It is it's amazing. That was like, this, the second main on their WrestleMania. <laughs> But I thought all wrestling events for like 15 <laughs> matches long. Uh, what we're doing today is we have uh, we've got two matches for you. Um, match 16 and 17, as previously stated. We're continuing on with the VTOP tournament, the eight-woman tournament that is the centerpiece of Big Egg Wrestling Universe. Um, one of the semi-finals has already been set by this point in the night, which is Combat Toyota versus Akira Hokuto. And we are going to be covering the other two of the quarterfinal matches. So... Um, to start with, we're going to do match number 16, which is the only all-AJW match in the opening round, and that is Archikong versus Minami Toyota. Now, this, I think, was the something like the third Joshi match that Sarah and I ever watched, and I think the first one that didn't include Bulldokano. Um, so, uh, and I don't, I, I think I have seen it a couple of times since then, but um, just wanted to see uh, whether it held up. Spoilers, it did. Uh, but before we do that, Sarah, would you like to do what you do best and set the scene for us? Yeah, I mean, do what I do best is uh, quite a claim, but you know, we'll see what we can. We'll see what we can do to try and half-ass it at least. So, Arja Kong, let's let's start at the very beginning because Arja Kong is pretty much like she's in that conversation for the greatest of all time so is toyota we can always come back to that later but arja kong i'm conscious as well that i don't want to repeat too much of uh, the pura puri podcast episode from a while ago where we actually talked through some of arja kong's best matches so if you want to hear a little bit more about arja please do feel free to go back i think it was episode 12 of pura puri um gentlemen you might be able to correct I, me on I, that. I don't think right. it had an it didn't have a number actually it was one of oh, our did it, um, not? it was yeah, around I, about that yeah, I think it was it was around it was around about that time. I th- what what I need to do is just like this is going to be a horrifying Kafka-esque nightmare of actually sorting the various chronologies of our episode sets. Into why playlists. do we bother with numbers? Like what? Like, <laughs> We've got more so non-numbered episodes than ones that have numbers. I know. Well. Uh, whatever number it is if you find yourself at a bit of a loose end and you've got a spare day at any point guys please feel free to go back to the Pura Puri podcast and have a listen to the Aja Kong episode where we go into quite a bit more depth um, than I'm going to go into here but I think here's your crash course in the legend that is Aja Kong so she trained in AJW and she she graduated and she made her debut in that incredible class of 1986 which we've talked a little bit about and it seems like approximately 70% of this show pretty much graduated between the years of 1985 and 1987 because everybody was just that good at that point. So she actually debuted in a match against um, a young Norio Toyoda before she was combat. So it goes back to this idea that all of these women are aware of each other. They've been working together for years and years. They all know each other really, really well. So, But obviously Toyota was eventually let go and went off and sort of forged her own path. But so Aja, meanwhile, slotted in with um, the Atrocious Alliance and with Dunk Matsumoto in those sort of early years, um, along with um, David Bay and no, and her key tag team partner, Nobuko, later to become called Bison Kimura. David, would you like a moment to react to the name of Bison Kimura? Oh, hail. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Follow, so, follow. so they, yeah. So they sort of join um, Atrocious Alliance. Obviously, Bolnikano is sort of the second in command at that point, and she gradually sort of takes over 
dump retires that stable kind of disappears Bolnikano basically takes over the reins but lots of people sort of then go go their own ways so Aja and Bison both then end up going off and doing their own things until 1990 when they come back and they form the tag team of Jungle Jack which I consider a, a, a brilliant name they don't form that until 1990 but when they do they go straight back to the source and they go after the atrocious alliance so by that point, we're into the uh, the, the Bolnacano endless reign of a thousand years uh, as the champion. So if you remember, we talked about that a little while before. Chikisa and Linus Asker both had retired by the end of sort of 1989. You've got that, oh God, who's our star now? Put the title on Bolnacano, who then carries it for like three years or something mental like that. So Arja is kind of a really natural foil to, to Bolnacano. And it's not that they're not also wrestling all comers at that point and like they're having a jungle jack having a really good tag run as well but Arja and Bull very much have this kind of head-to-head that's always going on in the background and you know even when they're not feuding with each other they're sort of feuding with each other so and this feud is absolutely wild there is a tag team hair versus hair match in January 1991 so we're not even that far into this feud and they are doing hair versus hair matches um so jungle jack actually both lost and both shaved their heads and when you think about, you know, how tense and kind of high stakes hair versus hair matches had always been in Japan, like, this is how serious things got. Like, they've been feuding less than a year and it's just like, nah, get the razors out, lads. You know, it's, it's gotten pretty extreme. It's a really bitter, really violent feud. But as long as you've got that tag match thing going on, um, Kong is then just chasing Bolnagano for the title. So, you know, they've got this kind of singles thing where they've kind of been on a collision course all the way through. There are quite a few um, title matches between the two of them during this point. There's been a lot of failed attempts, but eventually we get into November 1992 after, and, and just to give you an idea, like there were periods in the interim where like at WrestleMania 1992 earlier that year, there was a cage match between Aja Kong and Bulnacano in which there was just so much, so much stabbing people with scissors, like so much scissors, so not so much scissoring, that's getting a little bit the acclaimed, but you know, so much, <laughs> so much stabbing each other with like whatever implements they could find, like chucking stuff over the uh, over the top of the cage. It's absolutely incredible stuff. Eventually, they get to a point where Arja Kong beats Bulmakana. Wonderful, you think. Finally, this endless reign of our admittedly very dominant and very cool, but like seemingly unending championship reign. Finally, chance for a fresh face. Well, three years later, um, Aja Kong is basically still the champion. So when we eventually meet her at Big Egg Wrestling Universe, like Aja Kong is 24 years old. She has held the title for just about two years because we're in November 1994 now. And she's going to hold it for a little bit longer as well. So she is at the moment the mountain that everybody has to climb. So we talked before about how, you know, Bull had had this incredible run um, and then she kind of went off and did her excursions and by the time we get to Big Egg she's this kind of great conquering returning hero. Arja has kind of taken over that role that Bull had in the sense that everybody is completely bloody terrified of her and why wouldn't you be because she is absolutely I mean she's huge but do also bear in mind that there's a lot of you know there's a lot of subtext with Arja Kong as well I mean Bull had been that dominant monster champion she'd gotten beloved in the end you know e- even as a heel I would say kind of people still loved her and sort of respected her you know Arja hasn't gotten to that point and I think you'll see when we get into this match like you, you there's still very much a sense of oh you know there's a bit of a 
there's a bit more sort of resentment and a little bit of rage towards Arja as your kind of champion. She still feels like she scares them, basically, I think, in a way that Bulnikana doesn't seem scary to them at this point. So maybe they're on a slightly different trajectory. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. But Arja is coming at this from the point of view of she is, um, her mum is a Japanese woman. Her dad was African-American and they ended up sort of splitting when her, um, her dad was in the army and he basically ended up going home. So Arja has kind of always been in this position where, I mean, to give you an idea of what she was dealing with, Kong is for King Kong. Like that is a, that is very much kind of the place where she sits and, you know, her, her heel persona becomes kind of owning and responding to a lot of the kind of the, the, the racism and the discrimination and everything that she's dealing with all the time. And she turns that into that kind of heel persona. So at this point, she's at the top of the tree. And I, I cannot stress enough, by the way, guys, I love Arja Kong. I don't know whether you can tell this. I don't know whether you've gotten this impression. But frankly, she does moves that no one her size should be able to do, which I think we can all agree is the best kind of super heavyweight. And she just she carries herself like she is a weapon of mass destruction and yeah i mean i'm gonna shut up now tell me a bit about what you guys think of Kong. well i think like uh, it goes back to something we did mention on that earlier episode actually you, you talked about the discrimination that she'd faced and how she ended up really having the last laugh because nowadays and she's still resting at the age of 51 at the time of recording um she is a u- universally beloved legend who you know usually couldn't get booed if she tried and uh, but it's very clear that during this match yet yeah, she's still the monster heel people are booing her so we're quite not there yet in the same way that many sort of uh, you know in music many sort of rock hell raisers such as Ozzy Osbourne for instance uh, who were very shocking at the time when they get older they get they end up getting uh, I guess institutionalized as a kind of national treasure type of figure and I feel like that's the similar dynamic to what we have with Arja Kong I mean I first saw her um, on the wrestling channel back in the day in the uh, early to mid 2000s because they had the rights to uh, Gaia and she was the first wrestler I saw who was of that particular size you know you didn't certainly didn't get women who looked like her in uh, WWF at the time which was uh, the uh, the only women's wrestling I was uh, familiar with you know, such as it was in the uh, in the early 2000s so I think that was just quite a um, a moment for me where I realized and not that I haven't really watched very much Gaia um on the wrestling channel, but I did realize, oh, there are women's wrestling in Japan is different from what it is in uh, in the West. I wasn't to know just quite how true that was, but uh, I guess Arja Kong would be the first person who made me realize that. And yeah, I mean, just what more is there to say about her wrestling? Just like one of the all-time legends and, and greatest of all time. Yeah, David, I know you've watched a lot of Arja Kong matches as well, because you do love you some human conquers. Yeah, well, that's it. Um... I, I learned myself a human conquerors and Aja Kong might be the finest human conquerors exponent in the world. Um, I don't think there's anyone that comes quite near to her like her matches with Bill Nakano and stuff like that, like the cage match and things like that. Like she she is absolutely incredible and yeah, as you say, it's I it's sort of a similar thing for myself in that I hadn't really seen much women's wrestling until possibly possibly the wrestling channel, but may, more likely when I got back into wrestling in twenty ten. Um and yeah, it, like seeing sort of the old AJW matches, especially with Asher Kong and Bill Nakano stuff. Those sort of ones, those are the ones that stuck out to me. And Asher Kong, yeah, is just one of the greatest. I absolutely love Asher Kong, and I just think that she, even today, like she turns upon a Joshi show now because obviously she is still she's still working as you mentioned, and like there is something 
I think she's gotten to a point almost like the, the Minoru Suzuki school of like, she doesn't take herself anywhere near as seriously as other people take her, you know? So she's got, um, she'll turn up with Raku and she'll like try and, yes. uh, and like Raku in Tokyo Joshi will try and get her in a good night express. Um, and you know, and she'll just turn up with a bin and, and Raku will be there in her little delightful bonnet and, you know, she'll just be there and she completely is at home in that environment now. And, you know, you can't imagine in 1994 anybody would have dared go up to her in a bonnet yeah i mean like she she wrestles a decent i mean she's had a hiatus quite recently she's just returned but um oz academy is where she does a lot of her wrestling and you know she the house style there is very much heels cheating lots of choking with chains and being hit in the head with bins and she does that very well she always has uh but seeing her in tokyo joshi which is you know one of the lighter, fluffier Joshi promotions is there's an inherent comic value in seeing someone like that rock up and teaming with well, pretty much anyone on their roster, um, especially the undercarders uh, and just the uh, you know the the dynamic between them. So again, what I say, like she's become a kind of national treasure and uh, sort of defanged in in that sense, which she very much uh, is not here as her opponent uh, will find uh, finds out to her cost. Uh, her yeah. opponent being crucially, she's yeah. one of those people who has has aged in such a way as to like not start to hate the next generation either. Like she's one of the she's one of those sort of veterans who genuinely seems to still like wrestling and still like the people that she's wrestling with and against like she's not gone down the uh, she's not gone down the route of certain certainly men but certainly sort of american men who've gotten to the point where they just really want to like shit on the fact that nobody sells anymore or anything like that you know she still seems like she's very much like she's down to just get involved with stuff you know so she actually seems to still like wrestling which is really nice in someone of that generation I, i mean if you didn't like wrestling um, I don't think you'd probably be doing it considering someone of her status at the uh, age of 51 with, you know, <laughs> two bum knees. Um, so, yeah. Mind abso- you, maybe ab- if, she, if she did hate wrestling, we could have had the almighty sight of her um, forcing B Priestley to job to her in York Hall despite all her protestations. <laughs> <laughs> As if, Rev, as if Rev Pro would have put a women's match on a York Hall card in 2016. Wait, wait. I was second match on the card, you know, Azure Prong, Azure Kong over B Priestley. Second match on the card, or as I like to call it, the Progress Women's Title Spot. Did, did you just call her Arja Prong? Because that would be an incredible insult. Azure Kong. They are saying, I'm going to edit it in so you, you can. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello, um, everybody. And, and her, her opponent <laughs> in this uh, in this is uh, Manami Toyota, who will, if you are at all familiar with uh, Japanese women's wrestling, will probably be a name that you know but just for an the unknown figure out, <laughs> yes it, uh, obscure just uh, we have uh, we have sa- saved her legacy for the next generation <laughs> by bringing light to her accomplishments um I actually think Mike Quackenbush might sincerely believe he did that. Oh, who knows? But, you know, Manami Toyota, fortunately, um, Manami Toyota, you know, this really promising young upstart here. It's such a shame that nothing became of her after this match. Um, a Harley Davidson enthusiast with a sideline in wrestling every so often. <laughs> how, how mad is it, right, to think that Alundra Blaze and Bull Nakano did all of those matches, including the one at Hogwild where they were fighting over motorbikes, and Manami Toyota's the one person who actually quite likes a Harley, and like, why wasn't she just in that spot? She would have actually had something to fight for. Can you imagine her at Sturgis? Oh, God, I, she, she, you, she, you never get her back. 
She retired in '96. Just I'm still at Sturgis. Just, just the, she just joined Satan slaves and like this is my life now. Yeah, it's just going out the Confederate patches all over the place. <laughs> oh, Christ. Yeah. Not to introduce the Manami Toyota, the most angelic hell's angel that you have ever seen in your life. So this is this is the bit where I'm going to be, um, you know, I, I don't know how controversial this will be because I don't think I've really said it sort of in public before. But I think that Toyota is at this point, I think she's the nearest thing that AJW has at this point to a Chika Senegaya. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because she is wildly talented, but she is also... A, almost a simple kind of character who is this kind of beloved, quite earnest, sort of uncontroversial, sort of everybody loves her type of baby face. And that's kind of even more impressive when you think that her wrestling style is essentially mad shit. I mean, let's backtrack. So, I mean, she's actually, she's a little bit younger than Arja, but not by much. So she debuted um, at the age of 16 in 1987. So you see what I mean about basically this absolute raft of all-timers just popping out of the dojo, you know, hatching from eggs in the mid in the mid 80s. A lot of her success, although, you know, we're going to talk about her as a, as a singles star and think about everything that she brings into the ring. A lot of her success actually comes from some of the greatest tag team matches of all time at one point she and Mima Shimoda in their delightfully named Tokyo Sweethearts tag team which is a name that sort of goes through some iterations um, they're kind of being treated as contenders to be the new crush gals they come in quite early but in the end um, Toyota actually ends up sort of forming her most meaningful partnership with Toshio Yamada um, so those are kind of the two names that you'll kind of see with her a lot of the time in tag matches. Um, so there's a really early tag team match in 1989 um, for these guys where um, Tokyo Sweethearts versus Etsuko Mita and Toshio Yamada. It's actually, it's just on the undercard. It's a relatively, you know, it's a relatively low profile match, but they did the classic get all your shit in and really impress people on the undercard. So it actually really starts getting a bit of a rep sort of underground in terms of tape trading, um, you know, and it gradually, she starts to develop a bit of a name as a, these, you know, these women are ones to watch. You really want to keep an eye on that Manami Toyota. By the end of 1989, she's had some quite short um, reigns with some of the secondary titles and she's in this singles feud with Toshio Yamada. So just to give you an idea of kind of the scale and the length of this kind of wild feud that these two women had, they had this recurring feud that pretty much kicks off in 1989 and is still going in 1991. In 1991, they win the UWA tag titles together. Um, so yes, they are feuding and they are also the tag team. So this is this whole can they coexist tag team booking, folks, is actually not that unusual. They're doing it with these guys already. So... They have this feud, they win those tag titles, which, by the way, the UWA belts are the ones that the LCO match we saw earlier in the Big Egg card was for that title. So you can see them doing the rounds. They have won those tag titles by early sort of 1992. And later that year, they still had a hair versus hair match against each other. Um, so that match I, I cannot recommend strongly enough to anybody who hasn't seen it. And I'll be putting a link to it in the show notes um, because what's probably the most amazing thing about it i mean the match is incredible anyway but it's famous because um manami toyota wins um but she has so much respect for yamada and she you, you know and she's so impressed with this match 
she has to be physically restrained because she doesn't want anyone's head to get shaved. So she literally ends up being pulled down to the mat by a bunch of seconds because she is fighting to get in there to basically save Yamada from having her hair shaved. Yamada, to her credit, very much sort of respects respects the stipulation of the match and says, no, I'm going to go through with it. But it tells you a lot about kind of how this character is being consolidated as being someone who is very passionate and really cares and who fundamentally like wants nice things for people. Like at no point does she ever really turn heel in AJW. She's fundamentally seen as being an, oh, everyone loves Manami Toyota sort of character. And I wouldn't necessarily argue with that today either. Not long after the hair versus hair match, you would imagine that tensions are running high, but also in 1992, they beat Jungle Jack for the WWWA Tag Team Championships. So they've finally, as a tag team, they've hit the top of the mountain, but they've also been having this really wild sort of really pushing the envelope in terms of what they do with each other um, sort of feud. I think it probably does help that they were having these kind of matches at the exact time, actually, when, you know, people were starting to wise up to the fact that there was great, there was great women's wrestling happening in Japan. Um, so that um, 19, I think it's the 1992 match, which is the one that Meltzer gave five stars and described as being 10 years ahead of its time. He's probably not wrong if you ever see it. Um, Manami Toyota is the only woman to have, I think it's 14 five star matches from the Wrestling Observer newsletter, um, several of which are tags matches, but uh, there's also quite a lot of singles matches in there. They actually had um, two five star matches between um, Toyota and Yamada in the interpromotional feuds. They fought for the tag titles against Dynamite Kansai and Mayu Miyazaki. Two of those matches got five stars from the Observer. I think the ones where they dropped the belts and the ones where they won them back. I think, was it uh, in the mid 90s? Um, I think it was either 94 or 95 when it was a Manami Toyota match that was Meltzer's match of the year that I year. Was, I, was and... about to men- I was about to mention this. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, so, I mean, this match got five stars that we're about to review. So, um, but, and, uh, yeah, and again, I don't think I'd argue with that. No, but... God, not at all. But like the it was the 1995 one, uh, her versus Kyoko Inoue, who we're. Uh, is going to be in the second match we review on this episode. And yep. this um, this was voted match of the year by Wrestling Observer readers. And when you consider that the uh, 9th of June 1995 tag match between the Holy Demon Army, Army and Misawa vs. Kabashi, which we covered in episode one of this podcast, is seen by many people to be the greatest match of all time. The fact that it was not even considered the greatest match in the year that it took place <laughs> at the time should tell you a lot about the quality of that, uh, that uh, one-hour draw between Toyota and Inoue. Absolutely, and I cannot recommend that enough. It's like it's like a mad sprint for the last ten minutes, but for sixty minutes. Like it genuinely yeah. is absolutely insane. There are no rest holds. They do not stop. They do not have breaks. It's absolutely bonkers. So, but we're in this kind of odd point by the time we get to Big Egg, where Toyota is actually currently without a belt. So they'd lost the tag belts back to um, I think it was Kansai and Azaki that they'd well, that, that they'd kind of dropped those titles to in sort of the previous October. So we get into November. She is currently without a belt, and she happens to know that she's going into this first round match against the champion. So that sets up a bit of the stakes actually for this match because even if you don't win the VTOP tournament, if you beat the champion, you've probably got a title shot there. I think it behooves us at this point to figure out why do people love Manami Toyota so much. And I think, as you'll probably see as when we get into talking about this match, I think it's that 
it is that balance of her being like a beloved baby face who really like she gets that crowd connection that I think not many people get in quite the same way that kind of universal love but she's also doing the mad shit moves so she's doing she's fast she's flashy she's doing all of the high risk moves she's doing these insane dives that no human being should be doing I think in some ways you know the same criticisms that people level at people like Will Ospreay and when I say people I mean criticisms that I level at Will Ospreay about that kind of and the young books for having these kind of very flashy sort of moves matches that don't necessarily always have the storytelling and the psychology that I would look for I think some of that does go back to people like Toyota and everything that she's doing but she gets away with it because you can't help but bloody well love Manami Toyota Absolutely. I mean, the the thing that you said earlier about um, her being uh, 1990s equivalent of of uh, Chikis and the Gaia, I think that's really true because um, not just in the terms of her babyface persona and her crowd connection, but also in the way she wrestles. In 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 as much as uh, AJW had a house style, um, this sort of very high speed, you know, lots of Irish whips, drop kicks, etc., etc. What's often called go 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 style is uh, is it? And uh, you know, the the psychology of the Crush Girls matches and Toyota's uh, big matches are quite similar in the same way that RJ Kong has much in common with the likes of Dump Matsumoto and Bull Nakano in the way that she wrestles. In that sense, this is kind of quite a, an archetypal '80s match in terms of the the matchup of the of the characters. But yeah, I think like Toyota does have her detractors in terms of her ring work. And I think part of that is a sort of um, backlash that uh, against, you know, if someone is widely considered the greatest of something of all time, you're going to get people who are going to, to seek to pick fault. But I, I think also, if that style isn't for you, then I I think the, that's sort of a, a fair criticism. But what I would say is, and we go back to Osprey, like, because um, I, I think, Sarah, you were talking on Twitter last night about someone who would rate a Toyota a four out of 10 on Cage Match. Honestly, it's 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 mad actually. When you look at um, Manami's, um, you look at her cage side ratings. So she's got something like two hundred and forty ratings, one hundred and ninety nine of which are ten out of ten. Hmm. Um, some people have given. There's a few like nines and eights in there, and then there's one person right down there who's given her four out of ten, um, saying that she is missing psychology from her matches and quote unquote too quick for my tastes. Um, <laughs> And and God bless you for having the you know for for having the the wherewithal to put that out in a public forum. Um, but I do think you know you can admit that you know it might not be for you, and that you might have liked a little bit of a slower sort of more story focused, you know, quote unquote whatever that means sort of pace. And you know, but you can also appreciate. Look at her. Talk about uh, someone someone like Will Ospreay again, like you know. I, I recognise he's very good at what he does. Um, his style is absolutely not for me. I've grown thoroughly sick of that type of wrestling. He seems like an absolute plum in his personal life as well. But I probably wouldn't give him four out of ten if I was reviewing him. I give him like probably seven at the lowest. It, it, it rather puts me in mind of um, uh, something I'm still kind of annoyed about uh, many months after. A rather po-faced review in the Guardian of the uh, John Cena TV show Peacemaker. 
um, which um, gave it a three-star review and uh, termed the show puerile. And I was like, yes, it is puerile. That's why it worked. That, yeah, that's why it's good. It wasn't as though the people who made Peacemaker went out to create some extremely cerebral drama, which they had unintentionally undermined with those jokes about boners. Like, like no, they're like, they, they, they accomplished what they set out to do in the same way that Minami Toyota in this match accomplishes what she sets out to do. Her psychology is, I'm going to do loads of really cool high-flying moves. In a lot of ways, the the Manami Toyota let's do mad things really fast and build a lot of momentum. It makes sense for the kind of match that she's having against Aja Kong as well, because your classic David and Goliath match, which is what this is, like that's what you do. You use your speed, you use your you, you know you use your stre- your quickness and agility to try and counteract you know the power of this sort of immovable object in front of you. So that you know this is kind of the match in which you should be seeing Manami Toyota do stuff like this. I, I actually remember what the first Manami Toyota match uh, we ever saw was, because um, th- this is quite funny to think about now, but uh, Sarah, you were not initially very impressed with Manami Toyota uh, when you saw her, because uh, the first time we saw her was, um, I think it was King of Cheers 2012, um, one of those matches, or one of the Joshi Mania shows was from 2011. That first, was that the first time we'd actually seen her? It was, yeah. I mean, in, okay, so in my defence, I didn't have a clue what I was seeing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's be fair. Let you know. Let, let's be fair. But you know, I think it's you know, she is somebody who had to turn down that style a little bit as she got yeah. older because it would absolutely ravage your yeah. body, and you don't need to be doing that style when you're in your late forties. You, yeah. you know, but you know, she by that point it didn't matter because she was Manami Toyota. She could turn up and do a couple of spots that everybody loved and that'd be enough. That'd sell your tickets. I mean, that is essentially what we we saw when we saw her live. This is actually, I I would, I mean, it is definitely the first time we have covered a match on this uh, podcast series between two people Sarah has met in real life. But that is essentially what we got when uh, Manami Toyota worked Eve. Like, it was basically, she did all her famous moves and then won. Do you know what? It was all we needed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do not want to see Manami Toyota like fight from underneath. Okay, so after all of that, I think we should probably just get into the match, shouldn't we? So this is another quarterfinal match in the VTOP tournament. Arja Kong versus Manami Toyota. Um, the, the issue of which number match this is, uh, incidentally, comes up in this video. Because now usually I don't pay any attention to what the backstage interviewer is saying because he is always the most boring person in that whole setup. But... Before this match, he said, because he always introduces which match it is, he said, um, Dai Jugo Shiai, which in Japanese means match number 15. <laughs> so the show has gone so long that even the people involved have lost track of how many matches have happened. And the same for the next match is, is match 17, and he says match number 16 in oh, the uh, I think pre-match. I thought that was very funny. Indian child fight, that's what's happened. No, we're not even counting that. We've, right, we've counted that as, a, as an exhibition match. I, I don't know what the fuck's going on there. I'd love to know if these were shown out of sequence on the video or or, or anything like that. But um, yeah, that 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 made me laugh quite a bit. Toyota herself is wearing a shiny red gown. Is this symbolic? I've got written down. And they do the usual pre-match interview stuff. They both look majestic, obviously. And also, as well as being the only all AJW match in the opening round, this is one of the only matches on the show where they've got the rights to both wrestlers' music. So we do, we do get to hear God made the devil just for fun when he wanted the real thing he made, Arja Kong, which... So this is a licensed track. It's not that they played this because they couldn't get Judas Priest. I don't think it. I don't think it's like mm. dubbed over music because yeah, she has come out to it on certain shows. I think it was just her, her theme 
in the 90s. I might be wrong about this. I mean, if it is dub music, it's by far and away the most famous dubbed <laughs> theme of all time. Um, it's, so, uh, yeah, it's an odd one because I feel like Aja Kong is one of relatively few wrestlers where you can honestly say that they have like multiple like instantly recognizable pieces of music that are associated with them there's pretty much i can pretty much only think of her and potentially like hogan because you've got real american and then you've got the nwo thing like that's basically all i've yeah, the well, only you've example you've also think. got voodoo child and yeah. you've also got of course he's the best Hulk hogan theme yeah. he's american me, me. Well, I'd like to apologise to all our listeners for the fact that I invited this into our lives. Um, shall we Shall we crack back on with uh, Kong and Toyota's majestic entrances into the Big Egg? Yes, I, I think so. This is uh, proof positive that only bad things can happen when Hulk Hogan gets mentioned. So, I mean, uh-huh. Arja Kong coming out in this blue light, looking absolutely terrifying and demonic. Just, um, just an incredible vibe. And Toyota's entrance is the kind of, I mean... There's nothing especially regal about it, Um, like, uh, compared with Kong, certainly. I think she's very much more playing, you know, her character, which is is Mm -hmm. kind of um, plucky baby face. Although she obviously looks incredible as well, like, everyone in this show does. (laughs) That shouldn't shouldn't be a newsflash. This is one of these matches where it's like, fuck, this is such a big deal to be a first-round match in the tournament. It is, but it does make me wonder. So, in terms of booking for this, you know that there's, if everything else is kind of obvious in the first round, you've got Manami Toyota, who is someone who could be a legitimate title contender in her own right. And we also know that, you know, the potential singles match between Hokuto and Toyota is a very protected possibility at this point. I think this introduces enough doubt that you can walk into this going, ooh. Toyota could eliminate Kong in the first round and set up another title match potentially in the future. Like it's one of the few options I think that makes booking sense to kind of have as a first round match for your champion. I think there's something to that certainly, um, and and indeed the um, Toyota vs Hokuto match would take place the next year. So um, yeah, I I think it's just one of these things that and maybe also for you know those people who like only watch new japan and they don't really know about any other pro i'm sure there's ajw fans like that so it's like yeah if you have no idea who you know combat toyota or eagle sawai are and you're not really into them it's like okay here's two of your favorites although i suppose some of them will have benefited from the interpromotional shows over 93 and 94 as well so they will have had a bit of exposure that they probably wouldn't have otherwise had so i think that that number of people who only recognize the ajw names is probably smaller than you'd think to give a sort of silly example, it's very much like a sort of like you know City and Liverpool and the the cup together in like the fourth round or something like that, where you're like, well, one team has to go early, so you know that it kind of paves the way for you know that it's not going to you're not going to go all the way. So it may, it's it's a really interesting dynamic to have that in an early round, just because you expect both of them to kind of go into the semi-finals, and you know that one of them has to go. It's a good narrative device to have. Similarly, in 2000, All Japan did the Champions Carnival as a knockout tournament for some reason. And it was a tournament of 16, and one of the first round matches was Misato versus Kawada. I do just find it a really interesting idea. But it's so obvious as well. Toyota is a big attraction, and obviously they don't want to... You can see why they put this on as kind of the main event of the first round matches, because Toyota is a huge attraction. You see the ovation that she gets as well. This crowd is 
Aja Kong comes out and does her big power pose with the title and everything, and she gets a reaction, don't get me wrong. But Manami Toyota is just so obviously beloved by everybody here. This this has a big fight feel in a way that, you know, the other matches I think are are really good, but don't necessarily have the same don't have the same appeal, I don't think. No, I think that's true. I mean, as as far as the action goes, um, I mean, we may as well get this out of the way right now. This is one of the best matches of all time. And this isn't like just us having an opinion. Like I think it is universally regarded as being one of the greatest matches of all time. Yeah, no arguments. I think it is one of those where all wrestling is subjective, but what they're achieving with this match in the the kind of the pace and the intensity and how well they play with kind of quite well established dynamics, kind of the the David and Goliath sort of Taylor's oldest time is what, you know, that's a very established trope, but what they're doing with it, like they find ways to make it kind of fresh and interesting. And I do think it's got to be up there. And I think it's one of those matches that doesn't, I think it helps if you have the level of context that we have of knowing who they are. But I also think it's one of those that you can watch completely in isolation and everything about it makes sense. Yeah. And I think also it's a match that really benefits from being seen in the context of the other matches on in this tournament mm. because um we, we've talked about the extent to which the matches are different from each other i think all of the first round matches are different placing this alongside the the previous match the uh, kirohokuto eagle sawai one is really interesting because this has the potential to be pretty similar really you've got you've got the plucky baby face you've got a big very large monster heel and i know that when we talked about the eagle so i hokuto match we maybe thought that well hokuto didn't really get to do a lot and her comeback and her win was maybe a little abrupt but this match maybe at times does feel like it might go this way but then they just up the ante and up the ante and up the ante in a way that really differentiates it from what has gone before so i thought that was it, it was done really well they they really they they laid it all out there and i should say before we also before we get into the action um bear in mind this is the first round match one of these women is going to have to wrestle at least once more on this show and we've all seen one night tournaments where the the first round matches are all kind of safe because people are going to have to be wrestling multiple matches and they don't want to leave it all out there. Let me tell you, they do not do that here. They are absolutely here to work. And Aja Kong brought her bumping boots. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, It's it's so good. You you have to kind of remind yourself it's a quarterfinal throughout this match all the time. And like there was was a kind of aid of it where I was like, well, one of them knows they're going home. So they're like, ah, fuck it. It's the dome. I'm going to have my big, I'm going to have my final match. You know, I'm going to have the match that I would have in the final, but in the quarterfinals, because I'm not going to get to the final. Um, And all the better for it. Because sometimes you can you can fall into a trap. New Japan do this a lot with like the New Japan Cup, where it's like first round matches. And they're like, let's, let's go. 20 minutes or you know like g1 matches and it's like match day, match day four and they're going like 27 minutes and you're like it doesn't it doesn't really work as well when it's early matches are kind of going that length especially on a one night tournament and the thing is it's not even that long a match but they kind of pack in more than they should i mean this entire match has more action in it than i probably were about 10 years worth of titsu and naito's career um Certainly in terms of pace, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, like, 
yeah, they Toyota clearly miss it. I'm gonna have my moment in the dome. Even if I'm not gonna win this or go for it final or anything, I'm gonna have my moment. Bear in mind that when you think about how a tournament is gonna to be booked as well, there'll be an expectation. Everybody should go into a tournament acting like they've got one shot, you know, because nobody knows that they're gonna get through. But then when you think about how it's actually gonna be booked, like your semi-finals are probably gonna be a bit shorter because you know that your opponent's knackered as well. So, you know, whoever goes through from each of the first round matches, they know that they're going to have to wrestle, you know, at least once more. And But the, the tournament will be booked around that. So, you know, it makes sense that you would then have like slightly shorter semis. And then obviously when we get to the final, all bets are off. The, the one thing I really appreciate in the actual start of this match, just getting into the, the, the moves, is that Toyota just goes at it full pelt. Like, it seems like she is trying to just blitz Arja with all of her moves and just try and end it early so the I mean the the, the Minami roll which is just a fiendishly complex move to to pull off like just yeah in, incredibly technically complex and she, she always does it so smoothly that's in like the first few seconds of this match and there's like a fucking sunset flip powerbomb from the top rope and stuff like I think she that. does three Joshi bridges within like the first four minutes like proper like just spam it <laughs> <laughs> the the opening feels like a final stretch like it, it, it but it doesn't feel jarring because sometimes you see matches where they just do a load of big bombs at the start and then they they fall back into you know taking it a little bit easier and it seems badly paced but this one doesn't here and i think that's testament to how well i guess how much variety they managed to include in that and the way the the narrative ebbs and flows yeah but, I think it's a, I just love the way that this kind of, it. most of this match kind of feels like a closing stretch actually, but you know, to Toyota it is, like you say, she's trying to end it early. She's trying to, she knows that, you know, there's only so much punishment she can take from that Aja Kong immovable object type of approach. She knows that, you know, she will, she will tire very quickly, kind of constantly, you know, bouncing off of that, you know, in some cases, literally and physically. So she kind of, Kong's whole deal is slowing the pace down and you know this is literally what you expect from this kind of this sort of this dynamic the David and Goliath type of match it's just that they keep finding ways to kind of make it interesting so you get all those submissions and you get those throws but nobody does an, a fiery earnest baby face comeback like Toyota even if none of them feel like they kind of really last as long as they as they could she constantly gets the crowd behind her and like every time there's a turn of speed you can almost hear the crowd going like bump yes we're here for this yeah and we've talked before about how the the venue does tend to swallow crowd noise at yeah, times not for her uh, yeah yeah no no not in this match it's um this match really makes you think it's like you know all those like you know the, the people who, who like modern day new japan you you feel like talking to them and saying you know how like the closing stretch of the matches really good what, what if that was the whole match what if the whole match was good concept i'll never catch on <laughs> just the last five minutes good. the whole the whole thing with these joshi bridges just going back with what you were saying uh david when she does joshi bridge out what does kong do in response she does a boston crab and then stamps on her back before this camel clutch which she really sits back on and that's another of toyota's qualities very bendy so submissions yeah, the, the always submission. look incredible on her Oh yeah, absolutely, and like the it, it's really good because after this blitz of offense against Toyota, Kong's like, right, I need to get in control. I need to 
you know, work on her back, stop her doing all this sorts of stuff. So yeah, this is why we get Boston Crab stumps to the back. This kind of, it's not a bow and arrow, but it's kind of like her back draped over uh, Arja's knees. It looks painful as hell. That, that's, that's the beauty of it. Like for, for most matches, like this would be a very basic sort of, re- not rest hole, but you know what I mean? Sort of, again, slowing the pace down, grinding it down, getting it away from the real frenetic violent from before. But because it all looks so horrid, it doesn't feel like they're they're kind of paring back because you're you're just horrified at the moves and even when they go to the outside, usually rolling the outside is like a staple trademark of oh we kind of need to kill a bit of time, bit of filler and stuff like that. But like the stuff they do looks ri- ridiculous or horrifying, and it's yeah, it's really good. They they use they use their sort of tricks of the trade in a great great way. They they do. Tease because the, the um we'll talk about the segment where they're on the outside in a minute because it's just it's just so memorable. But they do tease the outside a little bit just before that. Like Toyota does the the and no one else was doing this at the time really. She, the the no hand springboard crossbody to the outside. And one thing we did notice when watching that is that um she she does one of her feet gets caught a little bit on the top rope. She doesn't get both feet like right on the top. And it was kind of a little bit of a hairy moment. And Toyota would fuck this move up, like, on occasion, even at the peak of her athletic powers. But I think that's actually part of what makes her such a thrilling wrestler to watch. Because, like, she isn't the cleanest, really. Like, she does she does mess things up because she's going for stuff that is so much more difficult to do than what, what most people are capable of. And... I hesitate to compare her with Sabu, but there's a there's a similar kind of uh, of thrill that you get from watching her, knowing that she could very well legitimately crash and burn at a lot of points. I think that's kind of what separates her from the Omegas and Ospreys of this world is that they are just a bit too clean, where you don't yeah. have that sort of you know nerve shredding Sabu terror that you would maybe get with Manami Toyota. Um, so, but no, so I think you're absolutely right on that. Yeah, you've heard me say this before, I know, but that kind of, it's that chaos energy of constantly feeling like things are on the verge of falling apart or you're just on the verge of something absolutely catastrophic happening. That's the thing that I think pulls me along with a lot of the matches that I love the most. You know, it's that feeling that something could go, you know, this could, shit could hit the fan literally at any moment. And I think Toyota's great at that because she's got, she's got that kind of, energy of kind of something that's almost just a little Icarus flying just a little bit too close to the sun but she's also got that kind of the explosive energy that kind of means that this kind of burst of offense could kind of almost come from nowhere and it completely just when you think that you might be kind of catching your breath a bit in the match like she pulls you straight back in and it makes this kind of match just a ride like you're just you're holding on for dear life and hoping to god that Toyota doesn't break her neck and and one of the you know the real criticisms of the kind of high flying that you get now is that it you know it seems choreographed it doesn't seem like a fight this feels like a fight this always feels like a struggle um and it, it's not just because of the big bombs it, it's it's the way that it's all done it's the way that it's laid out and it's toyota's contribution to it just as much as as Arges. the talking about big bombs though there is an absolutely incredible bit in the middle of this where toyota starts going for 
she starts a kicking match with Ardacon, which many, like, empires have risen and fell based on worse ideas than this. So, but she goes for it. And she, to be fair, they are, like, on any other person, these would be horrible kicks and just goes straight for her. And then Kong literally just looks at her and just kicks her back twice as hard because she's twice the size. <laughs> and it is, it just, that you, you see the, like, nothing kind of really highlights the differences between them than like this is her this is toyota kicking as hard as she can this is what happens when kong kicks as hard as she can there's a full-on oh i think i i think i saw her soul leave her body moment in that and i think it's absolutely it's so much fun to watch no one ever talks about arji kong's kicks do they and but they should. they're really good they, they should they're, they're fucking they're horrible like she's not doing like the the Miu Yamashita uh twisting kicks to the head she actually just do a kick to the head um in this match which she ain't doing those no more believe me but yeah it's the low kicks as we know if we've watched mma they are a legitimate strategy you do not a lot of them can really fuck someone up yeah completely you're right about kind of taking away her base to be able to bridge out of things as well but also when you look at a lot of her offense you know you're taking away toyota's base to be able to get off those massive drop kicks or to be able to get up to the top rope strategically i think that's pretty much the way to deal with manami toyota isn't it but it would you know some of those kicks could have felled a tree and manami toyota is substantially smaller than a tree kong peppers in these big moves you know there's not really a flurry of them at this point but in amongst all of the work in the back and the kicks my notes are just full of stuff like jumping pile driver for two. Oh, so good i love the avalanche that looks amazing ridiculous avalanche jackhammer for two Jumping pile driver for two. <laughs> Again, we're not even five minutes into the match at this p- point. The the probably in the early stage of the match, the the best move I would like to talk about is look. People who have watched as much early two thousands know as David and myself have. Big fan of stupid shit involving the ramp, <laughs> and there is some good stupid shit involving the ramp, as there has been on a lot of the matches on this show. But um, I love this spot so much. I think, I think the best way to de- describe this, I've not seen this much ramp play since Evil Knievel died. Um... <laughs> oh, <good> God. <laughs> the so what happens really? The lead up to the really mad shit is Kong hitting a running dominator on the ramp. In itself, very brutal. And Toyota is kind of hung in the ropes now. And Arjikon, but she basically does the great move thing. She goes to pretty much the entire length of the ramp and then runs across it and just like spears Toyota when she's in the ropes. She's kind of squished between the steel cables at Arjikon's body and then hits a jumping power drive when she's back in, back in the ring. The crowd start chanting for Toyota, so Kong hits another power drive. <laughs> Both of which are in the running, if you ask me, for nastiest pile drivers on Big Egg Wrestling Universe. And, you know, the ground that covers, I think we can all agree, is quite extensive. I just, yeah, I can't. It's simply approaching 300 at this point. I can't imagine anything scarier in the world than Arja Kong running towards me like that. Like, she is, like, I've never seen her move that fast. She'll probably never move that fast again, but I will be having nightmares about it for weeks. It, it's proper fucking. Um... John Cleese's Sir Lancelot in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> it's like you know, like the drums in the background. That's just exactly it. When, when you oh, see Azure break into like more than a jog, and you're like, Christ, Toyota is dead. It's like, um, no. <laughs> it's like when Akira Tawe does a suicide dive. <laughs> it, it's just like, yeah, some, something of the unheimlich about it. Mm. And um, as for those pile drivers, how anybody. I feel like I say this every time I watch a Manami Toyota match, but the fact that she has a neck 
at this point in her life. Like, the fact that she's up and walking and can do, like, any basic normal human stuff is absolutely fascinating to me when you consider the amount of punishment that she took for, ultimately, transitional spots in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. This is by no means unusual as well. I love this bit where um, Toyota sort of, she tries for a bit of speed as she runs in, basically she runs into an octopus stretch and, bless her, Arja Kong just bats her off and slams her on the floor. And it's like that, it, that's uh, kind of the match in microcosm, but I just love the fact that, you know, she's trying for this sentence and then there's an exclamation mark at the end of it when she's slammed into the camps again. It's, you know, it just feels so intense. After this bit, there is, oh, sorry, this is the no hand springboard to the outside. There's the other, <laughs> this isn't even the only one. Um, so this is the one where she almost fucks it. And then straight after almost killing herself, she ascends to the top rope again and then hits uh, the missile drop kick to the floor. And we, we know that if we watch enough Japanese wrestling, we know the style of missile drop kick over there. You land on your back. That's where you take the bump. So she's there doing the drop kick off the top rope to the floor. And then she makes contact with Arjun and then just goes boom, straight down, right on her spine, onto a rather thin little mat that they put on the outside. That must have sucked. Um, she's just immediately putting Arjun on a table and then doing a splash again from the top rope onto the table, which it kind of breaks. I mean, it bends really, doesn't it? It sort of it, it, it crevices slightly. So, I mean, that's about as close as Japanese tables actually come to breaking. <laughs> so I guess we should be thankful for that. I think the term I like to use is it bevels. It, it, it more bevels than breaks. Um, but, uh, that's fair. Yeah, it's... it's. But, I mean, they give it a good goal for a Japanese table. I mean, they, 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 are, they are sturdy bastards. Um, so um, I got worried when Toyota went up on the table with Kong, where I thought she was going to try some awful ocean cyclone suplex on the table, and I'm like, it's a uh. fucking postage stamp on the legs, you cannot do anything, and then she saw sense and was like, no, I'll just, I'll just do a splash, and I was like, I mean, good that you've not tried to murder Raja Kong there, but as well as that, not, not ill-advised, it's not, it's not, not the best, but they, they, she gives it a good goal to try and smash it. Imagine if it was the other way around and Asia had done that to Minami, that table would have fucking broken, but um, thankfully we'll never find that out. I'm sure they did this at some yeah. point. Well, it's only about These... five minutes after that when Toyota again runs for her, runs to try and get her a Kamrana and Kong catches her and just slams her down in a powerbomb. So, you know, again, just these relentless, ruthless, like, slams on the back this is in the middle of just a bunch of horrible moves yeah. that kong does i mean it's it's just after just after the table spot toyota does a moonsault for two and then gets the japanese ocean suplex with the logistics of that doing that to someone arja kong sides always baffle me because it seems like there's no way to get no way to get purchased to actually get up for it so um if you've ever seen the movie you know what i'm uh, talking about it's kind of just a I guess a couple of looks like wrist locks really like a double wrist lock and you're somehow giving someone a suplex out of that very cool move um and it kind of gets lost in like all of toyota's other super finishes um and then as if to punish her for doing that kong hits a very big release german for two and then the aforementioned horrendous power bomb that sarah mentioned also for two a splash from the second rope for two and then she goes up on the rope to try her falling elbow, which she, she does win a fair amount of matches with that move. Um, and instead, Manami Toyota hits one of my favourite moves of all time and something I had never seen before prior to watching this for the first time, uh, the Victory Star drop. So 
just to explain what this is, um, Kong is on the top rope. She has her back to the ring, and Toyota hooks her legs under Kong's arms and kind of uses her legs to give her a crucifix powerbomb. Am I explaining that correctly? I think that's the best way you're going to be able to describe it. It's really, really hard to kind of put into words. You, you, it is something you do just need to see. It is incredible. Like I absolutely love the move. It's so, so good. And yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anyone else do this. Um, it's a superb move. In any other match, it would have probably been an instant free count, and it was what, like a one point nine, two point two. And then we do get again logistically something which is quite wonderful, uh, attempting the Japanese Ocean Cyclone Suplex, but uh, it doesn't quite come off in the end. But so I love that she means... tried. I love that part. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. psychology of the match is that she cannot, she cannot countenance the idea that that won't work. Like, she's trying all of the same moves that she would try against anybody else. It's just that she's constantly having to kind of recalibrate and try and, like, solve the puzzle of Aja Kong. And she's doing that again and again. Yeah, so Kong gets her feet up for the moonsault and yeah, gets two off a missile dropkick. And then I think something that might get a little bit lost in the shuffle when you look at the psychology of this match. But one thing I absolutely love is when wrestlers try a move that they've hit successfully earlier in the match and it doesn't come off with them. Now, not very often is it done with such a gap between the two instances of the move, but Toyota goes back to the Sunset Flip Powerbomb, which she doesn't literally like the first minute of the of the match, and she gets it gets it over, and instead of taking the bump, Aja Kong simply Banzai drops on her. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's... <laughs> I love so that vile. spot. Like, I love so that good. spot, and I hated it in equal measure. You can really interpret it as one of two ways. You can interpret it as... Okay, Toyota doesn't have enough left to get her over for the power bomb. You can also interpret it at Kong is so fucked from this really intense match that she's just dead weight. So, like, just as a thought, we've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Indiana Jones has this brilliant scene in that where there's a you know a generic unnamed goon is waving a whip around at him and doing all sorts of really complicated sort of waving this whip around at him, and it turns out in real life, Harrison Ford had the shits that day and he just couldn't face it. So he said, what about instead of trying to engage with him, what if I just shoot him? And that is one of the, one of, honestly, one of the funniest gags in the film and one of the best moments in action cinema, basically. <laughs> you know, the overly complicated offence and then the pull out a gun, shoot the guy in the chest. Like, it's beautifully done. And that's what this spot reminds me of. It's like Toyota's trying to go for something really fancy and Kong's just like, Nah, and just like drops on her is like that bump. That's the pistol going off. You know, I thought I absolutely loved that. That's really funny. I I, I know the scene really well. It's one of my favorites. I didn't realize it was because Harrison Ford had come down with a bad case of Montezuma's revenge. <laughs> oh, he did. Yeah, he was really really ill. He he felt he felt <laughs> sick as a dog that day and just said to Spielberg, "What if I just shoot him?" <laughs> it's like because like, he just did getting, not want to be out in the sun filming that scene. Get, all day. Getting in a big, a big sword fight with this guy while I've got the shit's house and forward. Like that's not going to work for me, brother. I, I, I like the idea that Raiders also was actually seven and a half hours long, but on that day they had to film so many scenes and Harrison Ford just get this script out. We just cut that, cut that, cut that. I'll shoot him. Every, oh, this ten minute scene that's now a minute. Just get it down, get it down. <laughs> Um, and that's how you get from the Kenny Omega version of in, of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which would have been seven and a half hours long, to the Harrison Ford version that we all know and love. 
this is um, this is a, a key staple of every good Ryota Hama match. This is the the X Factor key change in the final um chorus um of every Ryota Hama match where someone with a bit too much hoot spell will go for the sunset flip and get absolutely murdered with a banzai drop. It it's a pillar of Puro. It is, you know, it's a staple. It, 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 this is this is heritage. This is what this is. <laughs> But yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's the easiest fucking dynamic in wrestling, isn't it? Big person, small person, sitting them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's so easy. <laughs> There's something just aesthetically pleasing about it as well. It's just the the arc of Toyota's motion and then just the straight down trajectory of Kong. <laughs> like it's uh, yeah, it, it's just it's just it's just an incredible moment in it kind of is the beginning of the end for Toyota in this match in Safara's. The back Kong tries the backdrop again, wins matches that with that all the time, gets countered, hits the Uruken, the back fist, which uh, get only gets two, and then she goes for I well, I guess it's like a Steiner screwdriver really. Uh, and that and that's what gets the three and that's kind of not a move that she would typically win matches with like she has so much shit in her arsenal and none of it has worked and she still needs to bring bring that out one of the most notoriously brutal moves that you've ever seen like the the, the move that when Steiner debuted it got actual like fucking gasps from the audience in in Japan so that's uh, and, and and that's the finish it, it it feels like I'm a big believer of the fact that the most brutal looking move should always be the finish and it very much is the case here. Which is incredible when you consider just how brutal every other move had looked in the match so far. But I kind of like that it it still feels like Kong kind of only just got her. Like that that yeah. five minutes earlier, that wouldn't have been a pin. Five minutes earlier that would have gone. But eventually she just she beat and beat and beat Toyota down until eventually she couldn't bridge out anymore. And it's incredible to it, it it's incredible to watch the fact that, you know, you've got Toyota Toyota's energy is boundless. So you get to that point where it's like, you know what, eventually she just has nothing left to give. And and I think it speaks to the intensity of the match. So, you know, right from that Banzai drop onwards, most of the matches, you know, with the, you know, Ryota Hammer as the key example, that's played for laughs. Because it comes out of nowhere and because it feels like kind of such a percussive sort of final sort of thudding noise. It kind of feels like that's the end of something and it becomes like it, it creates a lot of kind of humour for that. It's not played, played for last here. Here, everybody just goes, oh, and then from that point, it kind of feels inevitable that that's kind of where the match is going to go. But it still feels like, you know, Toyota, give her a bit longer. You know, if a couple of things had gone only slightly differently, she could have had it. Yeah, and I think it really puts over, again, going back to the context, really puts over the terms like, shit, if you have to do this to win one match, what are you going to have to do to win three? Yeah, absolutely. And I've got to say, this this match had me giggling, it had me shouting, it had me grimacing, like all of the things that I need to do in a wrestling match before I'm going to be it, before it's in the conversation for kind of top ten or whatever for me. Like, it needs to get that kind of, I need to feel like a kid watching wrestling again, basically. And I think that's what this match does, because it's a simple dynamic, and it's a dynamic that had been done a lot of times beforehand and has been done immeasurable times afterwards, but nobody's ever done it this well. Like this kind of, this David and Goliath match where somehow the David 
doesn't actually, you know, the David number one has a death wish, but fundamentally they don't really feel like that much of an underdog. I, I, I just, I love the psychology of this match. I love the way that it's pieced, pieced together. And I love the way that both of them still come out of it. Like neither of them is diminished by the finish. I, I do think it's just incredible for that. It, it really speaks to, I think, again, just another reason why Toyota is so good. It's very interesting you say that, Sarah, um, and I completely agree with you. The idea that, yeah, she doesn't feel like that much of an underdog, even though she very clearly is. But that's really part of why Toyota was so magnetic as a performer, because the way in which she wrestles, she never feels like completely pathetic and uh, and under the cosh because she can do all of this amazing stuff and we know it's in her locker and because she looks so resplendent and because you know we we know she's a big name she's been put across as such i think really that i think really that's the thing because we we talked earlier about like that one guy who gave Lamito to a four on cage match and uh, you know how he deserves full outlawry for this i, I think in terms of toyota's status as the greatest and the extent to which you know how much is that influenced by opinions in Japan? Because I would argue not very much. It doesn't seem to be a widely held opinion there. And how much is this influenced by Dave Meltzer and people who need Dave Meltzer to have their opinions for them because they don't have any of their own? And there has been a case being built, like okay, Toyota's reputation is as the greatest of all time, unparalleled, and we need to tear that down a bit and elevate the others. And I think actually there's a case to be made. The pendulum has actually swung too far the other way. The idea that Toyota is overrated. Like, no, 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 she's up there. And we, we actually did talk about this on the Christmas episode. The idea that we would rank her behind Arja Kong, Akira Hokuto and Vaughn Nakano is no slight on Toyota. That just probably means she's the fourth greatest wrestler of all time. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that, to be honest. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not mad at anybody who places them in a different order and puts Toyota at the top of that list, because I do think you can make a case for all of them. I think for me personally, I think she has been a little bit overrated for a while based on kind of the, the, the hyperbolic kind of tone in which you hear it. Like people told me for years and years and years that Hamilton is mankind's greatest invention. Like it's the king of all musicals. It's the greatest thing in the world. And then I watched it with some friends a, a little while ago. And you know what? It's great. But I'd been told it was the greatest of all time. And it wasn't. And I feel like that's the feeling that I've kind of had with Manami Toyota off and on for a while, to be honest. And now I think I think it's fair to reappraise her as kind of she's still one of the greatest of all time. It's just that also she's not the only one either. And for a while it felt like Toyota and Hokuto were the only people in that conversation. Like there's a lot of them. And, you know, this show is full of people who, if they'd been born at a different time, would have been, you know, the top stars in AJW. But unfortunately, they were around at the same time as Kong, Hokuto, Toyota and, and Nakano. And the, but then the corollary to that is that you watch this match and I've, I've watched it tons of times now. I can't even begin to tell you how many times every time I go, that holds up. You watch matches like this and you go, oh yeah, this is why people think Toyota is the greatest of all time. Definitely. And, and it's one of those sort of paradoxical things as well, where a lot of her best matches that show her being the best are also with her contenders for being the best. So like, for example, the person she's facing in this is Azure Kong. Do you know what I mean? That's and, true. You know, Hokuto as well and stuff like that. And um so yeah, I know what you mean. Um there. Like I, I would probably have to do a fourth. Um however, it, again, I say it's probably just means she's the fourth best wrestler 
history, which is not too bad. You know, you'd take it if it was given to you. Um, but, I mean, in terms of this match, I mean, ter- I, I absolutely loved it. They laid themselves out. They gave everything they could in this quarterfinal match. They did not hold back whatsoever. I think as well in the context of, you know, they had their time limit draw, I think, in 1990. Then they had their, their two matches in Japan Grand Prix. They hadn't faced for two years. Was it? They came here and it, obviously it was a, a clearly well-anticipated match. And they really lived up to the build. And the crowd were into it. And they just did not let up for the whole duration of the match. And, and I absolutely loved it. The only the only thing I could say, if Toyota had won, this place would have came unglued. The the, the you know the, the the big egg would have been scrambled. Um, <laughs> but even then, you know it, it sets up the storyline perfectly for um, later on in the show. And yeah, a, an absolutely flawless match that we will not see the likes of again. I think following on from that about setting up the story for the rest of the tournament, on the one hand, yes, had Toyota won, the place would have come unglued. But had Toyota won, it could have been the main event of the show. And what it has done is it kind of it's preserved a little bit of kind of Arja Kong's dignity because don't forget Akira Hokuto is actually the main character of the storyline throughout the whole VTOP tournament. Um, and we know, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight there's some long storytelling going on that means eventually Toyota is going to get the title, you know, within a year of Toyota will have had the belt, lost it and won it back again. So there's kind of... And in all fairness, I was I was going to say as well, like, coming out of this match, it absolutely made Toyota as the top contender for the title. Like, you want yeah. to see the rematch afterwards, you want to see her face calling, you want to see her go for the title. So it's done all the jobs it needs to do in this match. So even though, yeah, Toyota could have won, it would be pandemonium. In a way, this is a better result because you're still getting what you need out of Toyota. You're still getting everything that you desire from that, but you're also getting it from Kong and you're giving Hokuto the story that, that she needs as well. So, yeah, uh, I, 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 a great, great match. And, uh, yeah, if you said this is the greatest match of all time, I go, yes, it is the greatest match of all time. And these two clearly knew they were each other's probably best opponents because when Toyota retired and she had her... 50 wrestler gauntlet where she wrestled each of them for one minute. Arjukan wasn't involved in that because they ha- they went 20 minutes on an Oz Academy show the week before. So that just proves the esteem in which they held themselves and the extent to which everyone wanted to see these two tied up one more time. There's like, yeah, we need to do this. One last hurrah. Arjukan versus Manami Toyota. Let's do it. Um, what I would yeah, say, com- just to add on to that, is that mm-hmm. I also have at least half a dozen other matches where if people said that's the greatest match of all time, I wouldn't argue with them. So I'm not so I, I'm I'm gonna be cautious about putting this one head and shoulders above the rest, but I think it's gotta be in the conversation. I mean none Absolutely, of them are the grocery yeah. store death match, so you know <laughs> And we've got to accept that. The uh the post match interviews, I mean it's not really much to talk about here. Kong sounds knackered in the post match interview. Well I I I get some Get some protein bars, Danny, because you're back out in about an hour. Um, and uh, Toyota looks very pensive and doesn't say too much in the in the, the loser's enclosure. Yeah, do check. If you only watch one thing from this show, make it this match. And I know that's a rather counterintuitive thing to say, considering we have invested go- 
God knows how many hours of our time and yours into covering the whole thing in its entirety because we feel it's important. But yeah, if you watch one thing on the show, make it this one. How to follow that, you asked? Well, I'll tell you how to follow that. It is with the fourth and final quarterfinal in the VTOP tournament, match number 17 or 16, if you believe the backstage announcer. But before we tell you about the match itself, Sarah, could you please introduce the two competitors for us? Yeah, so let's talk about Dynamite Kansai first. Um, remember, we keep talking about all these people who auditioned for AJW and didn't get in. All those people who auditioned for AJW and did get in, but then didn't make the cut and ended up sort of wending their way kind of into the wider Joshi scene eventually. So Dynamite Kansai falls into the former camp. She auditioned for AJW and didn't get in but she became one of the first rookie class of JWP instead. So she debuted in 1986. So she is of the exact same generation of all of these people, debuted the same year as um, Aja Kong and all of that. Um, and then after, you know, the aforementioned incident, you know, we've seen some people who've gone on like Eagle, so I went over to LLPW. Dynamite Kanzai is one of the people who follows Jackie Sato over to JWP Project. So she doesn't take the name Dynamite Kansai until she comes back from an excursion to WCW in 1991. Previously, she'd been Miss A, which is a name that you may hear elsewhere, you know, as well. But Dynamite Kansai kind of appears almost fully formed when she comes back from that excursion. She is someone whose biggest accomplishments up to this point have been in tag matches. So regularly she gets put with people like Harley Saito for secondary and other belts, kind of. Certainly in her early career up to 1991, that's definitely there. In 1993, she's starting to gradually kind of build more up to that. So she became one of the inaugural JWP tag champions with a certain devil Masami in 1993. If you remember that name from previous conversations, that's because nobody in Joshi stays retired. Devil Masami is someone who should have theoretically retired a long time earlier and just keeps coming back. So Devil Masami does, however, fade out of this story in particular as it pertains to Kansai because Dynamite Kansai starts working with Mayu Miyazaki after that and that's when they really start to have a lot of success on these interpromotional matches as well. So there's a well-documented feud that they have with Manami Toyota and Toshio Yamada. Um, that iteration of Tokyo Sweethearts, I think. Um, so they saw them win and... They, they dropped back the WWWA tag titles to them. Um, there's there's two five-star matches just in that feud to give you an idea of kind of how far these people were all pushing each other. Um, you know, five stars according to Meltzer, but I think also according to, like, many other people whom I trust more than Dave Meltzer as well. So you, you've got this kind of this really hot feud that's really sort of established Kansai is a force to be reckoned with, I think. Um, in the background, she held the JWP openweight title from 1992 to 1994. She dropped it in the September. Obviously, Big Egg is the November. So there's still a lot going on with her. So she's currently without a title, but she's very established as a performer with probably most of the audience that are going to be at Big Egg because they've been on the interpromotional scene for long enough. And that's probably a a large part of the audience for, for this show as well. The main thing we need to know about Dynamite Kansai is that her kicks are absolutely terrifying. And that is going to be a problem for Kyoko Inoue. Inoue um, debuts a little bit later. She's She actually debuts in 1988 and she's someone who comes up through the AJW um, dojo again. She's homegrown. She's in the same class as Takako Inoue, no relation, and Mariko Yoshida. Um, we've already seen both of them, obviously. She ends up joining Bull Nakano quite quickly. By 1991, she's one of the more senior lackeys in sort of Bull Nakano's world. 
She spends a lot of time seemingly being thought of as a kind of a prospect or a like a next tier talent. Like she's she does, however, fit into this category that we keep talking about of people who, you know, could have been amongst the all time greats and arguably probably still are. It's just that they weren't holding titles because Archer Kong existed, you know. She did win some lower tier titles kind of fairly early and she starts feuding with Manami Toyota, which is a recurring theme actually throughout their AJW careers. They are the two who will then have that one hour Broadway, which becomes really well, really well regarded later on. They also have some fun with their kind of can they coexist tag bookings where they'd end up fighting each other as much as their opponents. And that's always a good time. In 1992, they had this insane, again, rated five-star match in which um, Toyota unlocks the Japanese Ocean Cyclone Suplex to beat her. And Meltzer said that they were 10 years ahead of anybody else at that point. And I, I don't think you can argue with that because I think this is a whole period of wrestling, which large parts of the wrestling world still haven't really caught up to. That was for the IWA title. She won the All-Pacific title, which is the white white belt that you'll have seen afterwards, to sort of build her back up after kind of losing that. They have these amazing tag matches. Kyoko Inoue is always good value in a tag match. She has some great singles matches as well, especially in kind of 92, 93. In 1993's Japan Grand Prix, she gets rolled up by Mariko Yoshida, um, and it, that happens in the semis. It, it feels like she's knocking on the door of that next level. So in 1993 and kind of by the time we get to Big Egg in 94, she's often kind of just behind those big names. But that means that she's one of those people who can take a loss on an interpromotional show to kind of maintain the political balance. She's over. She's great. They can always build her back up. So she ends up losing to people like Shinobu Kandori. There is some eventually success kind of just before this show when Kinoko Inoue and Takako Inoue, who are no relation to each other, but nonetheless obviously feel a kinship, form a unique bond in the tag team Double Inoue. Yes, that is the most adventurous tag team name you've ever heard in your lives. It's incredible. I love them both. That's when they each win their kind of first WWE tag titles. So they are now the top tag team champions in AJW. Later on, as the 99th champions, they would go on to vacate those belts and have a one-night tournament so that they could become the 100th champions as well. I love that gimmick so much. That's such a good gimmick. It's weird, though, because like the, the figures on Cage Match kind of dispute this, so I don't know. But again, we've had... Cage match is not real life. Like, I know that's going to come as a shock to everybody. So I'm I'm looking to independently verify this. There's people rating Minami Toyota 5 on there. <laughs> Worse than that, 4. 4, exactly. It's completely discredited. An absolute nonsense cage match. Well, it's a weird one, I think, because I'm, I'm looking to independently verify this, but I fully believe that that is the kind of thing they would do. Especially when you see... When you see Kyoko Inoue as a character and you see her in her, her costume and her face paint, like she she really is, you fully believe that she's the kind of person who would do that as a gimmick, basically to do a bit. Because doing a bit feels like you're a large part of Kyoko Inoue's character. We'll, we'll talk about her, I think, when we're looking at these entrances. But to you guys, she definitely gives me a feeling of kind of, she is happy-go-lucky kind of, wacky wailing inflatable and flailing tube men bailey era like having that kind of bright colors kind of really good fun good time to you does she seem like she's meant to be kind of a parody of ultimate warrior no i sure i mean because it's it's all very yellow and, and and orange 
Yeah, but like, I mean, I've got written down that she's got a 1996 Randy Savage Mega Powers jacket. Oh yeah, no, there's definitely an element of that. So, I think I think it's just that like Hulkamania with WWF was based on primary colours more than any <laughs> intentional tribute. That's fair but enough. her face paint, yeah, her face paint is a little like warrior-ish, I guess. I mean. Thankfully, there is not many similarities in terms of their wrestling. No, no, that is certainly true. But I think when you see these kind of pre, the pre-match interviews, I think, do a really good job of setting up both characters, actually, in this instance. So you've got Inoue, who kind of right from the off seems quite, like, sort of quirky. I get the impression that her gimmick is that she's kind of the resident madwoman because, like, she shouts, she's cheerful. Like, when she comes out on the ramp, she's going to be waving to the crowd and she's going to be very happy. Kansai, meanwhile, who, by the way, has an exceptional shiny jacket, is very clearly, like, respectful but focused and she's all business. That, that, is, that is the Green Power Rangers outfit. But reflective. <laughs> like, she is dressed as the Green Power Ranger. It, it's a look that is for that is for bloody sure. It's, it really is the 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 peak of the shiny jacket era at this point. This is sort of like you are getting maximum effect at the shiny jacket in any walk of life at this point, and then it kind of te- dovetails off after um afterwards. But but yeah, um, you cannot beat a shiny jacket. Um, is the best jacket. Just don't put it out in the rain. It'll be a disaster. So essentially, no. I think you could characterize this match as being shiny jacket versus tassels. I mean, yes, essentially, just like the, which is truly the most impractical thing you can have when you're the wrestling. The unstoppable yeah. force meets the immovable object. Shiny, ta- <laughs> shiny jackets and tassels. I mean, the, I, the Kyoko Inoue's entrance music kind of also fits in with this. It sounds like a cross between a 2003 pop punk song and Panama by Van Halen. And it's got her name in this as well, uh, constantly repeated, which I liked a lot. And she gets a lot of chance, so she's clearly very over as the, the home baby face. But I don't think one that people would have really expected to win this. Uh, I, I think she's... You talk about her, Sarah, uh, earlier, you know, all the, the accomplishments in her career. And I think she's really underrated as a performer. And I think that's partially because she's maybe not as well known as the other you know, people we've mentioned in the previous match and also because of the way she was positioned always at a sort of 1A between all of those people. I think that's spot on. I think she's one of those people where you go back and you watch her and one of the great strengths of looking back over an AJW card at this point is that actually often because people are so busy hunting down kind of the, the people that we refer to as the four pillars and their matches what people don't always realise is that if you took Paul Nakano, Aja Kong, Akira Hokuto and Manami Toyota out of those shows, you would still have an absolutely stacked card and every match would be great. Yeah, absolutely. And basically the vibe of this match, um, if, if we were thinking of the previous match as being the counterpart to Eagle Survivors, Akira Hokuto, which, you know, they, they were both a, a particular kind of match, you know, big versus small, this, I think, is more like the first quarterfinal, um, the one between Yumiko Hotta and Combat Toyota. Not just not in the sense that, OK, that was another big versus small match, but just in the way of the match was la- laid out. It's a real hard hitting contest and it's, it's more evenly booked than the, the two matches that were in the middle of those four. I was going to say, I was going to make that exact point about how this is probably the most reciprocal um, match of the quarterfinal, certainly of the V top that we've seen so far, is very quite is offensively balanced. I think it's, it's really finely balanced between the two. There isn't really a sort of dominator 
um, in this match, they, they, they do they take turns each, and it's it's a bit more 50-50 um, is probably the word I'm looking for than any of the other matches in the V-Cup up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. But I think um, it's there's less needle than in that Yumiko Hotta match. I mean, mean, to be fair, there's less needle in most matches than your average Yumiko Hotta bout. But I think it's maybe the reason this match feels a little bit different is because out of the three outsiders in the tournament, so you've got Eagle Sawai, okay, she's the number two in her promotion next to Kandori. You've got Comeback Toyota. She was not the top person in FMW. That was Anita, obviously. And she probably wasn't even the top person in the Joshi division uh, either. Whereas Dynamite Kantai, she is the ace of JWP. She is the the the, the flag bearer for her promotion in this tournament and outside of it. And for that reason, I think this match is very much feels more like a traditional fight. Kansai's whole vibe here is I mean she she does hit hard obviously, but there isn't the the viciousness of someone like Hotter who is a less heralded person who has something to prove just by being in the tournament. There, there's something almost regal about her and kind of serene in in the violence that she's she's meeting out she's very composed she's always in control of what she's doing and so i think that for that reason this match feels very different again yeah i think that's fair and in some ways that's the interesting kind of contrast between someone like her and someone like Inoue, who is you know not quite at that level in her own promotion but what she does have is this inherent likability and kind of she's the opposite of the composed restrained always in control, all business can sign. You put her with someone like Inoue, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of, it's more, the intrigue is more in the characters, I think, than it is in what's actually going to happen in the match or in the actual moves. But, I mean, ultimately, I'm looking at my notes, and what I've written about the start of this match is two scary, brightly coloured power wrestlers start twatting each other, then start running up and down the ramp. Like, this is yeah. really good for ramp shenanigans. This is a strong entry in the ramp shenanigans category. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, the the initial opening of the match is more cagey than the previous one. I mean, everything's more cagey than the, the previous one. But they do, do get into the exchange of strikes. Um, Kansai is relying on... The exchange on... strikes. The exchange Mongolian chops, which I... Yes! Oh, yes. I, was, I was absolutely buzzing. It's amazing. Yeah, she's going on the Mongolian chops. Kansai's doing the low kicks. Um, and Kansai kind of puts the the whole strike exchange to bed with this clothesline. Clothesline's Inoue onto the ramp, misses a clothesline, and then Inoue does her springboard back elbow, which is, I mean, she, she does a few of these in the match, but doing it onto the ramp is really cool. And then we get we get a giant swing, and there's just a couple of seconds of this insanely great overhead camera angle, which I really wish they'd stayed on. Very much the, you know, that overhead shot of uh, Brett versus Owen at WrestleMania 10? where it makes all their chain wrestling look super cool. But she's doing the giant swing on the ramp. It's like, just imagine if she just fucked her into the crowd, just like into the front, front free rows. Yeah. I, it's glorious. I, I love the giant swing as well. It, it was quite, it, it was always going to be difficult to try and assert Aja Kong um, and the ramp shenanigans with it by Joe if they'd done it. Um, I, yeah, I really, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and the, the giant swing, I, I, I put this way, I wouldn't have been taking it myself if that had been moved in the dressing room beforehand. I popped so hard for that for, for that um giant swing on the ramp. It, it was just it's just such a satisfying move to watch. It never stops being entertaining to me. And I think also just by going to the ramp early in this match, it kind of 
it invites comparison with the previous bout, but I think in a good way. I think they they will have probably realised that yeah, the, the dominator and the spear on the ramp in the previous match was really memorable, and they're kind of going, okay, we we can do we can do really stupid shit on the ramp as well. Yeah, so when they get back into the ring, um, we there's kind of there's there's a few there's a fair few chin locks from Kansai. She she's the one really slowing the pace in this and tying Inoue up in the ropes. Kicks her in the tits a lot. Uh, unpleasant. Too much. Um, Too much. Yeah, I know, Sarah. You felt this really viscerally when um... genuinely it is one of those things where like people getting hit really hard in the boobs like never ceases to make me cringe and shudder. I think it's just an occupational hazard in their line of work, but this is just one of many reasons why it would absolutely not be for me. Uh, but yeah, it is a very strike-heavy kind of... It, it strikes, it throws, it's submissions, it's power moves. I feel like it's a slower pace than the last match, and, you know, very deliberately so, all of these matches have to differentiate themselves from each other. But I think that kind of when, you know, it gets her hope spots and she gets her moments of kind of a, a speed and kind of building up that level of, of kind of excitement in the match... It's actually really well-timed. It's well-timed and well-paced so that you can slow things down, but then you'll just get just enough of a kind of rally before things slow down again. I kind of quite like the pace of this. It feels different. Yeah, it, it's certainly the more traditionally laid out of the four. Certainly not to its detriment, I think, as the final one. Yeah, maybe maybe you want something that is a bit more classic. Yeah. I think I, like, I really like this submission um, sort of exchanges in this because they have come from completely different backgrounds in terms of, you know, Kyoko and we. Uh, you know, has sort of a background, you know, she's been to Lucha promotions and stuff like that, whereas Dynamic Kansai obviously came from that more sort of shoot style um, background. So you see the two kind of mixing it up and kind of using their their different knologies to, to work the submissions is really, really interesting. And obviously, it's obviously going to be a bit of a come down coming from Azure to, versus Toyota to this to then have quite a lot of submission based, you know, segments, but. They did their best to make it interesting, uh, yeah, and I really enjoyed it. The, I think the reason this submission stuff works in the opening is because there's just as much of a sense of struggle with it than the previous match had with all of the mad moves being done. It's not all this like Zack Sabre Jr. shite where they're just like going from move to move to move and like not letting any of it breathe. Like, I mean, Sarah, Sarah I think this is probably your favourite spot of the match, the bit where uh, Inoue is going for the surfboard. Oh, I, yeah, I have two favourite spots in this match and this is one of them and it comes quite early. But yeah, Inoue is trying to get um, Kansai in the Mexican surfboard and they have this battle where like, Kansai's like on, like she's kind of on her front on the mat and it almost looks like she's swimming because she's like, Inoue's trying to pull her arms back and then she's just powering out and like, pushing her arms forward and they go backwards and forwards like this a couple of times and by the end like it looks amazing when it's applied but that kind of final pull before anyway finally gets her arms back and gets her up in the air for it she almost looks like she's praying like she looks so desperate please let this be the time come on please just move with me and, like, and it just it feels so it feels like it's really hard fought like in spite of that it kind of it's I suppose it could be a comedy segment, but to me it did. But to me, it kind of almost didn't read that way either, because I loved the sense of struggle in it. It looked, it looked so good. And I, I think what comes after the surfboard, when she does it into a chin lock, is there anything better than a Mexican surfboard transitioned into something else? Like you know, dragon sleeper, chin lock, you know, just fucking them onto the floor, rolling around the ring with them like Amy Sakura does. All of the things you can do after a surfboard are incredible. 
Um, and what uh, Inouye does is something I, I don't see this very very often. When, when she's um, kind of like she's going for a muta lock, and then she she does a bit of dancing when she's got Kansai in the position. <laughs> she loves to have fun, Maggle. But um, then she rolls her over and transitions into she's kind of some kind of elevated figure forward. She's got like her knees like up in the air. And I've got a down at an angle. Really interesting hold. And again, goes in with like, this is very much the kind that like 55-year-old luchadors who smoke 40 a day, all their matches, just them putting this kind of stuff on each other. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. There's this kind of, there's some hideous moves in here as well. Like it is, a obviously it's very different and there's, it has a different type of horrible move, I think, to the previous to the previous match because I think it feels like it feels like it's coming from a different place in terms of the pacing and kind of the tone of the match is just so different. Um, there's just this idea of basically Kyoko Inoue is getting everything in, she's throwing everything out, but Kansai just won't stay down. And there's this really cool sort of springboard reverse elbow off the turnbuckle, and there's some there's some really really kind of big moves in here, and I kind of feel like. Inoue's getting these big reactions like, don't get me wrong Kansai is getting a lot of traction with the crowd she's getting a lot of reactions, but every time Inoue kicks out, there's a big pop for it because I think everybody is kind of almost willing Inoue to be the one who kind of pulls through and powers out of this, she's clearly really beloved yeah I, I just found it I just found it so interesting as a, as a contrast from the match that that we've just seen, but also you know, I think it works in isolation for that pacing yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, Kansai does do her own submissions. Like, there's a sharpshooter at uh, some point. In way, gets the ropes. Kansai drags her back off the ropes and hits the STF. Or again, something I always pop for when it happens. And then there's just a bit where they're clotheslining each other. In way, manages to get one off, and then she hits the. It's a double step up falling elbow. She just runs up the ropes, and then like almost as soon as she's done that, she's falling backwards to do the elbow. Kyoko Inoue's agility is is just fantastic. Again, something like Toyota gets props for high flying, but Inoue is incredible. And she's like, she she's not huge, but she's not skinny either. She's like, she she's kind of deceptively fast and agile. She's one of in, the bigger non-Aja Kong wrestlers on the roster at this point, though. Yeah, I mean, if you want a, a good insight into her, her her stamina, then I you know watch her match with Toyota from 1995 uh, the one where they go an hour because rarely will you see in fact probably ever see an hour-long match with so little downtime yeah like th they're going hard for so much of it they really are kansai gets a, kind of a second wind after that and does some kicks then there's a uh, stupid ramp shit now we've got stupid apron shit um where wherein in a way tries to attack kansai on the open and gets clotheslined off uh they're on the floor kansai goes for a splash mountain on the floor uh, that would have sucked. Uh, in a way, rips, uh, whips her into the barricades and Kansai fires back with a close on. They both collide with each other. That's great. Again, more high flying from Inoue. She gets a missile drop kick for two. Tries a power driver, gets kicked in the head twice. And another one, another kick to the head after Inoue is on the deck. Just a, a semblance of the a semblance of the brutality that Hotter was uh, dealing out and Kansai is just proving you know, she can do it as well. As, as an outsider. The counters in this match are interesting because, like, uh, again, going back to, like, some of what is most detestable about modern wrestling, what what was dubbed the Gay Gordons wrestling, all these uh, counter sequences. The counters are all pretty simple. It's like, I try back power one, we get shoved off and clotheslined. But, again, they, they all feel, it all feels like there's, there's a struggle going on. Yeah. 
and it, it's kind of harkening back to what you were saying about the submissions as well, is that there are, the struggle is a great theme of this match. Um, and so what makes it really, really good is the fact that, again, it's not Kay Gordon's wrestling because it's not just going through a set routine of wrestling. It's, it's you know, there is a bit of a fight back. They're, you know, they're clearly trying to, on some level, try and win a sporting contest um, as opposed to just putting on a theatrical performance. And and it is theatrical, don't get me wrong, but like it doesn't it doesn't feel artificial. Kanto does finally hit um a splash mountain. One one of the greatest moves of all time. And she holds it in a way up for absolutely ages before slamming her down. I popped so hard the first time Roman Reigns did one of those. I was like, Yes, yes, give give Roman Reigns those a cool power moves. He's good at them. And he's really tall as well, so it always looks horrible. Like he's not Kevin Nash size, but you know, he's well over six foot. Like have him lift people up and throw them down to yeah. the mat really hard. Yeah, more of this, fewer promos about magic beans. <laughs> they fairness, finally figured out the Roman Reigns formula. Took them long don't, enough. Don't face yeah, up for suck attached. That's rule one. We are, however, knocking on for three years of the bloodline now, and this is literally me. This is literally where I've been sitting here thinking it took them such a long time to figure out what to do with Roman Reigns. Now they figured it out, and they're like, "We're going to ride this to the end of the world." <laughs> like I've got no idea when the bloodline's going to cease to exist. You- I you, think it goes be, past Mania, personally. You, you'll be begging for the bloodline when Vince gets his hands on creative and suddenly Rowan Reigns is cutting a promo about Sami Zayn and the 40 Thieves. Sami Zayn, you don't have the tater tots to take the WWE title <laughs> from me. That was the other one. The, the holy trinity of shit Roman Reigns promos. Suffering succotash magic oh beans in the tent. I just want to take us all away from this and remind us of something less horrible, like that god-awful, brutal back elbow off the top rope to the back of the head in this match. Oh yeah, this 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 was the other, the other great spot of the match. And I think really shows, I, I guess, the trust these two would have had in each other as performers. So um, yeah, in a way does her double step up back elbow. But Kansai, it's it, it's like it's the blindest of blind feeds. She's got her back to Inouye, and she just get absolutely fucked in the back of her head with this elbow. It looks absolutely horrible, and would have been a you know, a believable finish in uh, anyone's book. I I I do like. I don't know if this is just a little bit of big dogging, but I did notice that Kansai got up first after that. Oh yeah. Oh no, definitely. But she, you know, Inouye then comes quite close to getting a roll up off of something else afterwards but you know there's a you know there's a there is definitely i mean there's not going to be a politics free match on this card i think this one's probably one of the ones where they, the the dynamics are probably more, most clearly established to the audience as well as to everybody as well as to kind of everybody in the back as well there will be some politics in there I don't know whether that's just dynamite can i like her whole deal is that she just does not stay down yeah, or it might be that she got up and then realised Inoue hadn't got up first and was like, shit. Yeah, also very possible. And that's one of the risks of a blind feed as well. You yes, know, indeed. You, you've got to go, you, you've got to be prepared for that. But yeah, yeah. there's a, there's counters into a, counters into this superplex to get Kansai out of the top corner. It's There's just some great stuff going on here. And then you start to see the wear and tear piling up as well. Inoue gets Kansai up for this powerbomb and then just sort of crumples underneath her. And, you know, I don't know whether they're I mean, we love people selling on offense, right? And we love when offense doesn't quite work out because somebody's really selling. I've got no idea whether that was planned or whether that's a, or whether that's some form of botch. But I don't care. I don't also don't care. It, it's what makes this match what it is. Yeah, like that's that's a really interesting bit as well. And it's, it's after she's just done 
uh, a step up belly to belly suplex off the top rope, like like the kind of thing Kurt Angle could do. I like Inoue's uh, commitment to finding a cool thing that she can do, which is to leap up the top rope in two steps and just trying to incorporate it yeah. into as many moves I as possible. I fucking loved the suplex. Um, it was so, so good. And again, very. I mean, I was an absolute bastard for it in every Kurt Angle match. I would never tire of it. So when it came out here, I was, yeah, absolutely loving it. Um, a brilliant move. Um, I've never seen a bad one. Yeah. No, no, it's like it's it's always great. Even when it's a bit fucked up, it's like, oh, you know what? They tried, and and that was cool. Um, she does. She, yeah, after she finally hits the power bomb, she locks in. It's it looks a bit like um, you know when uh, Kazuchika Okada tries to get over a submission finisher like once every three years and it, it never works. <laughs> I think this was one of them. It's kind of a cross-legged camel clutch. They call it the spider nest on commentary, which was very cool. Um, after that, she uh, in a way goes for the powerbomb again, but gets her legs swept out. And at this point, they're just swiping at each other on the ground, proper pub car, fu- car park fight stuff. I, again, it really just shows the, the wear and tear that they've accumulated the fact that like they've done all their fancy moves and now they're just fucking down in the dirt just like pouring at each other and and, and all the rest of it um in way finally does manage to hit a lariat and she goes up to the top rope again kansai kicks her off uh well doesn't kick her off she just kicks her she's still on the top rope and then we get an avalanche splash mountain which gets the three because of fucking course would. yeah um <laughs> Possibly one of the coolest things I've ever seen, by the way. Like, Splash Mountain off the top rope never ceases to Even in me. the realms of 90s, yeah. Kuro and Joshi, you, if you were to kick out of that, they'd be like, nah, that's not, it's not, that doesn't work. Like, that was, yeah, of course it's going to put you down for the three. Yeah, yeah, if, if you kick out, it's like, right, I'm done, like, um, Sansong at the right of Spring Perry. It's like, right, I'm fucking this off. This is too much for me. The last three hours of this show can go fuck itself. That's a reference I'll need to explain in the show notes. <laughs> so you know how, like, the Rite of Spring was so, like, musically, like, avant-garde, it literally caused a riot at the premiere? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. So, so, so... And you thought before... that carcass gig you went to was a bit intense, David? <laughs> well, well, this is the thing. Before all the all the French um, classical music lovers started fucking brawling with each other, like, Camille Sanson left after nine bars, I think. Because, like, in the opening, like, Camille Sanson stood up and was like, the bassoon's playing too high, fuck this, and left. Amazing. <laughs> of, of all the things to like, get the hump about. Like, 90% of Glasgow uni students on the sub crawl, they left after nine bars, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Very good joke, man. Just keep that in now. Sorry, Sarah, go on. Yeah. No, I just think there's... Uh, I think with this match, there's just... You really get the sense of how much this show has ramped up over the past few matches. The crowd's ready. The match quality's gone, you know, continued to rise as you've gotten into the tournament as well. And I really like that of the four first round matches that we've now talked about, all of them do feel different, even though in some cases, like, the dynamics haven't changed. Like, there's, you know, in the same way that, you know, if there's only seven basic stories and there's only seven basic stories in wrestling, one of them is small person versus big person. And another one is, Two people who really don't like each other wanting to kick each other. All four of these matches all have something very distinctive about them, and it makes it a, it makes it a well booked and a well produced tournament for for sure. I was about to say well booked and well produced show, and I was like, ah, actually, I'm I'm you know that we'll say it, but we'll save that for the finale. We'll save that for the final episode. But yeah, I I just think that it's a I think this was a really good way to kind of round off talking about 
the first round of this tournament really because it introduces people who aren't going to get you know aren't going to be the people that you're talking about by the end of the show but they're people who absolutely took their moments and ran with them when they got them well i mean in, in a way certainly is none the worse for her participation in this tournament i mean we'll talk about what kansai did next after she gets eliminated from the tournament but i mean uh in a way i mean she's still wrestling. Spoilers she's got for her fuck's own sake. company i i, ha- I have good <laughs> dynamite kansai and i put me out to win this whole thing you can't be from this <laughs> i thought I've, I've got I've got an accumulator on her and Grimsby Town to beat Brighton in the. I thought, the, I thought the generals were due, George. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's she's got her own promotion now uh, called Diana, and uh, like I say, she she had that amazing hour long match with Toyota, which I think won the Observers Match of the Year award for that year. And nineteen ninety five, let me tell you, very good year for wrestling. And again, one of these people was like, "How the fuck are you still wrestling?" Seriously. Um, she didn't take as much punishment as uh, Toyota did in this match, but let me tell you, she took a lot, and that finalises the lineup for the semis of this tournament. So we have, I guess, we should just uh, do do a little bit of bracketology. So what what's we the draw, is... George? What's the draw? Well, uh, we're going we're to need a pissed up Rod Stewart to uh, to do it for us. Um, yeah, it's. Um... It goes, it goes with the order of the matches in the quarter. So we've got Com- Combat Toyota versus Akira Hokuto and Arja Kong versus Dynamite Kansai. Those are the two semi-finals. We will be covering them and the final in the next episode of Big Egg Podcasting Universe. And um, I guess that's where we'll leave it today as far as the matches go. But um, should we do some plugs? I run a Partick Thistle podcast called Draw is a Draw. Um we are, uh, uh, funnily enough, because I'm not editing it anymore, this might actually come out in some sort of time-sensitive fashion. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so at the moment, uh, Thistle have went through a whirlwind couple of weeks where we lost our manager, brought back our greatest buzzing player um, as manager, and have decided to go on a title tilt, apparently. Um, it all looked completely hopeless and gone a couple of weeks ago, but we've had a couple of good results and we're doing great. So then we've got 10 games to go. This is sort of us chronicling our incredible my plan. Uh, and we're going to win the title on the Friday night in Kirkcaldy at Rafe Rovers. I'm going to get pissed until Monday in the Woody. And then I'm going to go to Eurovision Tuesday to Saturday. Um, it's going to be incredible. But we're documenting my descent into alcoholism um, as we get there. But um, yeah, so we're doing week to week um, analysis of all the games and stuff like that. But as well as that, we're doing lots of other cool things. Last week um, on Monday, I released... Um, an episode about the Tenant Sixes, which was a um a six aside indoor tournament in the nineties, like FIFA ninety eight, um sort of thing. But I interviewed um four players from the team, um as well as people who were there for I think it was an hour and five ten minutes, a long documentary about what the hell the Tenant Sixes was. Uh, basically, about the time Patrick Thistle rocked the SECC. They were there much at their luminaries went past before them. Metallica, Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath, all these. Patrick Thistle, they rocked the stage at the SECC. And it's a great documentary. I think you would really enjoy it, even if you're not a big um, Thistle fan. It's it's more just about, about um, the people involved and, you know, sort of, I look back to the 90s and, yeah, it's great fun. So I definitely say, if you get a chance, the 10 at 60s episode of Draw was a draw, something to look out for. I also do lots of terrible music. 
um, at foleyx and xwaddle.bandcamp.com as well as fastbunk.bandcamp.com. Um, I actually done a Joshi themed noise release called 13 Japanese Birds, which is a, a pun on a Mayor's Bow series that he done. Um, but um, yeah, so try that out. Also, um, our comrade in arms, Daniel, um, does a podcast called The Echo and the Thunder um, about Irish republicanism. He also does lots of weird music at lonelylament.bandcamp.com. Oh, and donate to Jags for Good as well. Um, uh, we are doing lots of cool things with Food Bank uh, around in the Glasgow area. Um, we gave, uh, I think it was like 60 Ukrainian refugees a free ticket to go see Partick Pistol versus Cove Rangers in the rain, which seems like a very Putinist thing to do, to be honest. Just kind of ground it, grind them <laughs> down. But uh, they looked and enjoyed their day and they're doing lots of really cool things in the community for people who have been displaced or asylum seekers or just people who are generally you know having a tough time of it Fissel are doing some incredible stuff and Jags are good at the catalyst for it it's just getting that teacher yeah so I think first things first in the interim when we have not had any episodes out I have still been telling people that I do Big Egg Podcasting Universe um, and one of the reasons that I have been doing that is because it's got me an in on shows like Must See Matches so the Must See Matches podcast is great fun i've really enjoyed the episodes that i've been on there um essentially mark buckledy and kieran lafort are going through a kind of really interesting fan-made project uh, where people submitted nominations for the matches that they consider to be absolute must see in wrestling history what's been happening there is they've been doing this project they've been doing this project where they they have a weekly podcast where they'll get guests on to talk about whichever matches there were on that list there's a hundred matches on that list so it's going to keep them going for a while i've kind of stepped in on a few episodes to talk about some of the great Joshi matches that have made their way onto the list. But I have been on there to talk about some great stuff like the Akira Hokuto versus um, Meiko Satomura match from Gear in 2001, which I consider to be one of the best matches uh, that's kind of ever happened. We also talked about Chikusen Agai versus Don Matsumoto from the infamous Budokan Hall show in 1985. Um, there was also La Galactica versus Jaguar Kota from a similar kind of area. And there's also one of the great interpromotional um, tag team matches from 1992 as well, which also involved me complaining about how people can't beat Shinobu Kandori. That is a theme that you will notice the longer you hear me bang on about Joshi. I've really enjoyed doing those episodes. They're super fun and there's episodes on all kinds of other matches in there as well so have a look for that on any of your kind of major podcast platforms but crucially also find them at must see matches on twitter and mastodon and god knows what else you know who knows we might be looking at the heat death of the universe and indeed the heat death of twitter within the next week or so at this point so definitely check out must see matches and that's been an absolute blast and shout out to the guys for inviting me on there so many times now also, follow me on Twitter at SarahParkin1, and I'll be publishing links to the show notes and things for this episode as well. A final plug from me goes out to a book that I was uh, I contributed an essay to quite a few years ago now. Um, in fact, I think it was published not long before the pandemic, so it was round about January 2020-ish. Um, but this is a book called Women Love Wrestling, and it is a book um, by and about women who love and are involved in the wrestling industry. So I wrote an essay for that with Chigusa Nagaya featuring quite heavily, actually, about the history of women wrestling's fandom. 
I suppose. Um, so the, the idea that women have actually always existed as an audience for professional wrestling, the industry hasn't always necessarily seen or catered to them. But the good news is that if that doesn't interest you, that's fine. Because my, my essay is first, get it out of the way, and then there's a bunch of other really interesting people. Now, Mick Foley has publicly praised this book and I, I as far as I'm concerned I can I can retire um at this point or I could if it wasn't for capitalism. That was fine. But crucially um proceeds from the book sales will go to Rain in the US and Women's Aid in the UK. So really worthy cause um and if you don't fancy the book chuck some money their way as well. But yeah, women love wrestling, must see matches and boost my ego by following me on Twitter. Them's my plugs. If anything, if Mick Foley's like me, he'll read the first chapter of a book and then fuck it off. So you're guaranteed that he definitely read your bit and liked it if he's giving it praise. I'm 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 kind of hoping that one day I'm gonna meet him and I'm gonna tell him that I wrote that. He's gonna go, Oh, that was good. And I'm gonna believe that he's not just smiling and nodding to be polite to a stranger. You, you never know. It could happen. Stato, okay. you're gonna plug. So you can buy my novel, The Rise and Fall of Ricky Dozan. Uh, for your Kindle for £2.49 or your local currency equivalent or a print-on-demand paperback for £17.99. Uh, many people seem to have read the book and liked it. You don't need to know anything about wrestling or Japan. You don't need to know anything about... I mean, some familiarity with like words might be useful, but other than that, you don't really need to have much knowledge going in. It's, I'm told, quite an accessible read, even though the length might be intimidating to some people who are. So um, do check that out. You can find my writing at I'm in him, the com, and also at Marshmallow Bomb, which is a new substack that has been set up by my friend Luke. Uh, our friend Luke, should I say, and a collective of like-minded people. I do some long reads on there. What My most recent one, as of the time of recording, is what is surely the only ever comprehensive investigation into all of the pro-wrestling allusions in Salman Rushdie's novels, uh, which is yeah, quite, quite a, something I've been threatening to do for, I would say, about a decade, um, but uh, very fun to write and I hope to read. So, yeah, you can find my writing in those places. You can also follow me on Twitch at Lord Tempai, L-O-R-D-T-E-N-P-A-I. I mostly do Mahjong, not recently because I wanted to do some other things. I've been playing some some RPGs and this incredibly hard ROM hack of Pokemon Emerald, which I would not recommend because it is a hellish ordeal in all respects. You can follow the podcast at Pura Podcast on Twitter and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio and on SoundCloud as well. There's also a Facebook page, but no one uses it, so don't subscribe to that. And I think that is about it. So, without further ado, we shall put the cap on this episode, and we shall see you next time on Big Egg Podcasting Universe for the semi-finals and the final of the VTOP tournament. We are hitting the sharp end now. Okay, see ya. Right, gentlemen, press stop on your recordings, save them. Nobody leaves this call until I have every WAV file in my possession. <laughs>